Welcome to Downtown the Podcast. From glorious Bangor, Maine, where springtime is but a rumor. <laughs> Rich Kimball here with Carrie Haskell. And on this uh, episode six, some good conversations. One with the actress and director Leah Thompson, and also with Robert F. Kennedy biographer Larry Ty. That's what we've got for you on this edition of Downtown the Podcast, which is brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength, and by Nice Brewing Company, German-style beer from the woods of Maine. Leah Thompson has been uh, making movies for and television shows for more than four decades. Of course, uh, known for her work in the Back to the Future trilogy, starred in a very successful NBC comedy series in the late 90s, Caroline in the City, and has continued to work nonstop uh, in shows like Switched at Birth, uh, also Scorpion, has directed a lot of episodic television, but makes her featured television directorial debut with a new film entitled The Year of Spectacular Men that hits theaters and uh, video on demand as well on June 15th. We had a chance to catch up with Leah Thompson and talk about the the new movie and some of the stops along her career. Thank you so much for uh, visiting with us here. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. You've been doing the media blitz today? Yeah, uh, one of the many media blitzes. <laughs> but you're my first. Oh, I am. So I, you know, I can't ask you what's the dumbest question you've been asked today. I, I guess I'll be the one to set that bar. No, I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let's talk about the movie. This uh, sounds so exciting. The Year of Spectacular Men, uh, very much a family affair, uh, directed by you. Your daughter, Zoe and Madeline, star in it. Your husband, Howard, produced. Uh, I have to think that at least made the whole negotiations process go a lot more smoothly. Yes. You're getting nothing, I'm getting nothing, and so are you getting nothing. But we're going to work really hard. (laughs) (laughs) And your daughter, Maddie, also uh, wrote the script, which looks like a very interesting story uh, about two sisters who find themselves at different places in their lives. Yeah, it is. And and about, about what it's like to be a millennial when you graduate from college and you're not quite sure what to do with your life and how hard it is to date. So when you have a really rotten year, you're going to need your sister. That's kind of what the the, the story is. But it's a it's it's quite lovely, and it's very rare that you um, actually have a movie written by a young woman for young women. And you know, all the times that I when I was an ingenue, I never had a single word written by a woman, much less a young woman. So it's really interesting to have you know, her own story told by her. Well, I'm also excited to, to see a movie that's about real people, and it's no it's no knock on comic book movies and uh, on movies with things blowing up constantly, but it seems like it's harder to find movies about people and relationships these days. Yeah, I know. That's really hard. I go to the previews, and I'm like, really? Do I have to see something blowing up and people <laughs> getting killed and shot? Like, that's... I don't really need to see that. I agree. And, uh, yeah, it's rare. And um, and it's also rare to see a comedy about a woman in her 20s. Like, usually women, are, they they write stories about women when they're, like, 17 or 16, but and then they turn 30 magically. And there's movies <laughs> about people in their 30s, but not, not women in their 20s, not comedies about women in their 20s. It's very unusual. So I'm hoping that we're fitting, uh, you know, that was the first thing that Madeline thought. She was like, when I uh, when I go to Netflix, I can't find anything for me. I want to make something 
for me and my generation. And um, and so because it's, there's there's hopefully people will watch it because there are so few of them. Well, and is there hopefully uh, some reason to believe here that uh, with the Me Too movement, uh, one of the outgrowths of this will be that we'll hear more women's voices, young women's voices, all women's voices, uh, not only in front of the camera, but behind the camera and in, in producing and writing. Yeah, I know. And, you know, the great thing about that is, you know, when you have diversity, you also have new stories, new points of view, new new combinations of people that you haven't seen. When all of our stories are written by the same kind of person, you get this, you know, not all the time, but you get the same kind of point of view. So it's it's good for all of us to have stories written by different kinds of people. And um, it, it, I find it's interesting when uh, men, and, and men in their 40s or 50s watch this movie, they really enjoy it because they really haven't seen this point of view. They've been, it's been a mystery to them what <laughs> women actually think and what women actually talk to each other about and what they actually feel. And I've always been surprised at, at, at how uh, unusual it is you know, for men to, to, to see this story. Um, and how fascinating it is. It's just, it's good for everybody. Well, it'd be good for young men, too. I mean, I, I can vaguely remember being in my in my 20s, uh, but I, I know at the time, I had absolutely no idea what women my age were thinking. Right. No, it is good. I I, uh, I just did an interview with a guy who'd seen the movie, and he was, uh, you know, he said he cried a lot, and he had no idea that women took to heart so much when a man broke broke their heart. Like, he, he, he really was so surprised. And I was like, really? And he was like, yeah, I, somehow I just thought that they, like, didn't really care. And I was like, are you crazy? <laughs> so um, it, it is good. It's good. It, that's the beauty of our my business or our business of entertainment and stuff is that you get to really show people their own humanity and you get to you get to literally walk a mile in someone else's shoes depending upon the movie you're watching and and that's why that's why these these kind of personal movies are so great because you really this is also a movie these independent movies they haven't been through the mill of like everybody deciding you know people with jobs right in the studios all these people who you know, job is to say, I don't think that's funny, or that girl's not pretty enough, or, you know, girls shouldn't do that, and, you know, that guy should be nicer. You know, no one, this didn't go through that kind of vetting. You know, this is, this is this, this is this one writer's uh, pure uh, vision, and, and, and so it's, less diluted and I love that about independent film. I love that about acting in independent film because I feel like I'm more in touch with what the with the being an actual muse like closer to what someone really wanted to to do. Well yeah and the the best movies like the best art uh, help us find truth and it sounds like a, this is going to be a wonderful example of that. I hope so. I mean she, Maddie did some beautiful writing. She has a she has a, a um three kind of voiceovers in it that are just beautiful. She's a wonderful writer and funny, too. It's funny and it's poignant. And I love this kind of comedy where, um, which is kind of like a revolution right now, where 
you know, especially in good TV, and I, I think Judd Apatow did a lot of this too, but not all the time. But where you don't, you're not telling the audience exactly where to laugh and where to cry. You know, do you know what I mean? It's right, a little more right. subtle. You can kind of find the pieces that really touch you and find the pieces that really um, make you laugh. But we're not like highlighting it with, with you know, tricks of the trade. <laughs> and and uh, and I'm really proud of that. It's a little more um, subtle that way. We're talking with Leah Thompson. The Year of Spectacular Men opens in theaters on June 15th. What are the particular rewards and perhaps challenges? of working with family, particularly with directing your daughters? It's a really interesting situation. I mean, I honestly don't believe that there's ever been a movie directed by a mom where sisters play the sisters. Uh, I really don't. I mean, there must be, but I can't find one. So it's an, And that the, the sister has written it. You know, it's like, it's so interesting. And it's slightly autobiographical. So, um... It was really an interesting project. It's taken four years, and we've all grown with it, and we all supported each other in in our new kind of things. I mean, it's Madeline's first screenplay. It was the first time she scored a movie. It was Zoe's first time producing a movie. It was my first time directing a, a feature. I've directed TV uh, movies and episodic TV, but my own first feature. So we all kind of supported each other in our efforts to, like, better ourselves, you know, to do something new and to move forward in this industry. And so, you know, that's something that I think women have to learn is how to take partners and how to to, to get into groups in order to get something done. I think we naturally think, well, we got to do it ourselves, you know. But it was great for me to learn from them as well as have them learn from me and all learn together at the same time. And, you know, I'm a real family person. I adore my children. They're, they're fascinating women, really interesting, strong, um, powerful women. And, um, you know, they've taught me a lot about myself and we've been there for each other when we felt weak, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like I can't do this. We'd be there for each other to say, yes, you can. And I feel like it's a whole new part of my life where I am finally taking charge of my own kind of destiny in a way, having been in this business for a very long time. I, I think I made my first dollar in the arts when I was 14 or 13. So it's been, you know, 40 years of this. And so I... I feel like it's a whole new world. Like, they've really helped me and given me a lot by letting me direct them and and help. And Zoe is a big star, my youngest, and she really helped us get the money, you know. And so we've all done different things in order to make this happen. And It's been really, like, the greatest experience of my life, I have to tell you. (laughs) That sounds very exciting. I also saw that uh, you just uh, did a pilot with Lee Daniels called Our People. Yes, I did, but they didn't pick it up. Ooh. Sadly. So that was that was that was sad. But that just means I get to direct more and concentrate more on the directing. Um, you know, it's a lot easier to just act. <laughs> <laughs> so that would have been a cushier job. Well, yeah. Uh, my... each, thing, each thing I do, you know, each thing you do whether it succeeds or fails, like teaches you something. 
my wife is an ASL interpreter, and uh, that led us to become big fans of Switched at Birth uh, that you were in with Zoe. It was a wonderful series. That's so wonderful that your wife is a... That's incredible. Wow. Yes, Switched at Birth is really wonderful. It really did a lot for moving the ideas forward and and helping people understand the deaf culture and deaf people. And I feel really um, grateful. Uh, the fans are so, so touched by it, and it really changed people's lives. I always joke about that and when, I'm, when it's a long day of shooting, and I always say, if we could just change one life, and everyone always laughs. But I think, I, I think that show really did open up a lot of people's minds, and I, I've prided myself in trying to um, put things out in the world that I think are good and, and um, kind, and I think that show really was that way. So I, I, I feel really grateful. I mean, it might not have been the biggest hit, and a lot of people didn't see it, but the people who did see it and the people who needed to see it, it was very important. Well, we loved it uh, very much. We're talking with Leah Thompson here on Downtown. We would be remiss if we didn't bring up, of course, uh, Back to the Future, the trilogy. Uh, It's been more than 30 years. Now, did you have any idea in making those films that that three decades later, people would not only be talking about it, but have this incredible affection for those characters in that story? No. And it it kind of went through a dark period, I think, somewhere around in the 90s. and then all of a sudden, it just, when the 2000, 2001 hit, it just just took on its own, like a wave of life again. And it's just, I mean, but my mother-in-law watches it with her daughter, her daughter's daughter, and her daughter's daughter. Like, all these generations can watch that movie and get something different out of it. And for whatever reason, it's just had such legs as a movie, and we're all surprised, really surprised. I, I mean, I've, I've heard Bob Zemeckis say just didn't really think that that would be the movie because he's made such great movies. And um, I feel really lucky that I've known for uh, such a great part because Lorraine McFly, <laughs> because I played all these different inca- incarnations of her and she was such a crazy character. Um, I, I feel really lucky uh, to to have played her, <laughs> she's a real character. Yeah, what did you and like? Mean, what did you, you like know, best well, about Lorraine? What? What did you like best about Lorraine? Um, I liked best. I, I thought she was a very complicated character. I thought she was so interesting, uh, and you know, slightly off. <laughs> the fact that she was <laughs> in love with her son was very weird and off. And uh, I, uh, I just think that I did a good job creating the character and helping tell the story in a better way, which is, you know, what you're really there for. And and obviously people love your work there, uh, but I have to think maybe a more important experience to you from that time period was making some kind of wonderful, the residuals from that continue to bring you benefits. I know. My (laughs) husband and I are about how we Deutsch directed some kind of wonderful and we met on the movie and we were about to celebrate our 29th wedding anniversary, and of course, Maddie and Zoe, who I made the movie with, are our children. And so, yes, yeah, some kind of wonderful is 
you know, it's a beloved movie. People love that movie. Mm. The music is still amazing. The opening of that movie is incredible. And I think it's really one of John Hughes' best best movies. It's it's one of his more, I well, because how he directed it, but it's it's kind of, uh, it, it, it's, it's kind of like nothing really overly big about it. Like, it, it, I think The Breakfast Club was kind of the same way, but I think those are, in my opinion, his two best movies. And um, I'm really proud of it. And, of course, I have one of the paintings from from the, a, a portrait of me. Oh, that's and, great. <laughs> <laughs> and you've told your daughters, look, just because I did it, don't get involved with your directors. I know. I was thinking about that with the with, with your, what you're saying, like, you know, you're not supposed to date anybody that you're working with and all that. But to full disclosure, we didn't start dating till after the movie was over. <laughs> well, we're so excited to see uh, the year of spectacular men. Uh, you obviously enjoy the experience of directing. Will there be more of that coming up in your future? Yes. Well, I'll be still do, doing um, episodic directing. I directed Mom. I, I'm directing some more Goldbergs. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what else. Um, but I'll, I'm sure... I'm developing different movies right now. I'm developing one with Whoopi Goldberg and another one with another writer. So different things like that. I just hope to be able to be more in that kind of capacity where I have more kind of say in the actual product. So that's what I'm working on right now. But I still love acting. So if you have a great part, <laughs> call me up. Now, on the Goldbergs, have you worked with a great friend of our show, Stephen Tobolowsky? Oh, he's so great. Yes, and I just directed him in a pilot presentation. He's amazing. He's so funny. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm very excited about working with him again. And there's so many great actors on that show. And I, I really enjoy it. It's, it's great. So I, I have that coming up. And, you know, fingers crossed. And, uh, and if you can't get to the theaters to see The Year of Spectacular Men, it should be out in um, video demand, on demand, on the 15th of June. And then it'll be on the other platforms so as they bloom, probably. <laughs> thank you for doing your research and everything. I really appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you for coming on with us. I've been a fan of your work for years, and I look forward to seeing the movie and hope this is just the beginning of more feature films for you. You're so kind. Thank you. Thank and you, Leah. Say hello to your wife for me. I will do that. Good luck with the movie. Thank you. That is actor and now director Leah Thompson talking about her new film, The Year of Spectacular Men. It's in theaters and a video on demand on June 15th. And what a man, what a delight she was to talk to. Isn't it always nice, Carrie, when you talk to somebody and they not only live up to your, your hopes and your expectations, but exceeded? And uh, she certainly did that. Yeah, it was, it's always great to have uh, these folks come on and, and just be really engaged in the conversation. And, man, she was. And, and I, I wanted to ask about Howard the Doc. But... <laughs> Which she's talked about in interviews and jokes about. And uh, it was a was not a, a big commercial or critical success. But you know, it's one of those movies that uh, I I still like. I'll still, if I see it's on cable, I'll check it out. And it was the first Marvel movie. It was the first Marvel comic to be turned into right. a feature film. And she did uh, you know, so many of those uh, terrific 80s movies, All the Right Moves with Tom Cruise, very early, early in her career. We talked about Some Kind of Wonderful, of course, and many more. But uh, she's an absolute delight. Hope the film does well. The Year of Spectacular Men.
All right, we shift gears next on Downtown, the podcast. And remember uh, what many would say is the most traumatic year in American history, certainly in the 20th century, 1968, from uh, beginning the year with the Tet Offensive in Vietnam, uh, the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy, violence at the Democratic Convention in Chicago, and uh, on and on and on that year. We'll talk with author biographer Larry Tai, who wrote the book Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a Liberal Icon. And remember uh, Bobby Kennedy's quest for the presidency in 1968 and his assassination 50 years ago this week. It's coming up next on Downtown, the podcast. First, a word from our friends at Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Five years ago, a couple of friends got together. Their mission, create balanced beers that pay respect to the rich German tradition of brewing, layered with all the nuance and eccentricity of modern brewing methods. With that, Nice Brewing Company was born. Based in Limerick, Maine, right in the foothills of the White Mountains, Dustin and Tim combine their love of beer, science, and their German heritage for truly unique brews. Whether it's the nice Weiss, the Sun and Shine, IPAs, Stouts, Porters, or any of the seasonal offerings, you'll love what they've got brewing at Nice. Ask for nice beer at your favorite restaurant or bar. and Visit the Tasting Room in Limerick. If you're in Maine, they're open Fridays from 2 to 8, Saturdays from 12 to 7, and Sundays 12 to 5. You can also visit the website at nicebeer.com to learn more. That's nice, G-N-E-I-S-S. Work hard, play hard, be nice. Hey, you don't make it bad. Take a side song. 50 years ago this week, the Beatles were working on that song and others. The 68 presidential campaign was in high swing. And Bobby Kennedy, who entered the race late, had won the California primary. But of course, on June 5th, 1968, he was shot at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, would die the next day from his injuries at the age of 42. 50 years later, Bobby Kennedy viewed uh, in many ways differently from his brother Jack, who had made it to the presidency. And maybe it's because of uh, the possibilities that existed that were never fulfilled with the assassination of Bobby in June of 1968. We talked about that on this 50th anniversary week with Larry Ty, the author of a book, Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a Liberal Icon. We're looking back throughout the spring and summer in 1968 and wanted to talk with you uh, about Bobby Kennedy and not just what happened in 1968, but uh, the evolution of Bobby Kennedy that you wrote so eloquently about in your book. Uh, let's start with the word liberal. There was a time when that was not a pejorative term here in America. Uh, there was a time when that wasn't a pejorative term, and there was a time where that adjective didn't describe Bobby Kennedy. The young Bobby Kennedy, when he was starting out just after law school, went to work for the table-thumping, red-hunting Senator Joseph McCarthy, which is not exactly a place we would have expected to see our liberal icon Bobby Kennedy. No, and but that experience transformed him in many ways. How did that help him begin his path to becoming a liberal icon? So it was 
on the one hand, his uh, maiden voyage in terms of the whole world of politics, and he got to see how people worked with the press and manipulated public opinion to turn it around on an issue that they were passionate about. And Joe McCarthy was certainly passionate about the issue of looking for communists behind every pillar at the State Department. And with Bobby Kennedy, um, he had an experience with McCarthy. He came away liking Joe McCarthy, despising McCarthy's young protege named Roy Cohn, who went on 40 years later to be Donald Trump's tutor. And Bobby, as he did in everything in life, started out knowing very little and ended up coming away learning from what he had been through. And the McCarthy experience helped him get launched in politics, but also helped him come to see that he was more liberal than conservative. Well, he had a very interesting disposition as the the runt of the litter. You point out that his brother Jack often referred to him as Black Robert, and, and a lot of people you spoke with talked about good Bobby and bad Bobby. Yes, so Bobby Kennedy's father, the guy who really controlled the whole Kennedy family, was the patriarch Joseph P. Kennedy. And Joe Kennedy had zero expectations for his middle son, Bobby. As you mentioned, he referred to him as the runt of the litter. That was partly a reflection on his size. He was the smallest of the Kennedy boys, but it was also a reflection on the fact that he seemed like the one least likely to succeed. And over time, Joe came to see that Bobby, in fact, was most like him and was the most likely among all of his children, and he had nine of them, to get things done. He also carried uh, hate around, and uh, his dad had said, uh, when he hates you, he hates you completely and then forever. And, and that maybe manifested itself in no greater way than his relationship with Jimmy Hoffa. What fueled that hatred of Hoffa? So I'd like to say, actually, Joe Kennedy said brilliantly, and this was meant when he said it as a compliment, he said, Bobby hates like me. And that was something that Joe thought that people should be passionate about, Things and know who they liked and who they hated. And Bobby Kennedy, in his life, hated four people. And you might say that he had not bad judgment looking back from a historical perspective. One of them was the FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover. A second one was the guy we talked about a minute ago, Roy Cohn, Joe McCarthy's arrogant young protege. The third one was Lyndon Johnson, who seemed like he was from a different planet than Bobby Kennedy. He had come from a poor environment in East Texas, and Bobby was the Silver Spoon Harvard guy. But maybe out of all of them, the one that Bobby hated the most was the very powerful head of the Teamsters Union, the biggest and most powerful union in America, and that was Jimmy Hoffa. And Jimmy Hoffa, like the other three that I mentioned, had grown up without all the opportunities that Bobby had had and he was a really hardened and in lots of ways a crude guy, but an incredibly effective advocate for his Teamsters. And Bobby hated him because Hoffa was probably corrupt. He hated him because Hoffa sort of flaunted every rule out there, and he hated him because Bobby was narrow-minded enough at that point that he couldn't understand why Teamsters members, in spite of all those other things, or maybe because of them, saw Hoffa as their great champion against the very powerful trucking companies and other companies across America. The book is so incredibly well-researched and, and unearthed so many details. I love the 
scenario that you talk about, uh, the meeting with Hoffa and Bobby Kennedy, uh, when Kennedy actually got on the phone with Ethel and said, yeah, I, I'm leaving. I think he says, you know, unless, unless I blow up, unless the place blows up before I leave. Exactly. So that was a wonderful, and he was only partly joking when he told Ethel that. He said, if you hear a loud noise, you'll know there's a problem. Uh, that meeting also, if you believe the two of them and their stories that they told afterwards, they wanted to each show how manly they were. They actually got down on the floor and had an Indian wrestle one another. And each of them claimed to have won, so we're not quite sure what happened. <laughs> we're talking with Larry Ty, author of Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a Liberal Icon. Uh, what fueled Bobby Kennedy's decision to run for the United States Senate? So he had, if he had in his life any epiphany moment, it was that moment in November of 1963 when he was just getting out of the swimming pool at his great estate called Hickory Hill outside of Washington, and the phone rang. And it was the poolside hotline to the White House. And on the other end of the phone was J. Edgar Hoover. And as soon as Bobby heard that it was Hoover on the phone, he knew it was going to be bad news. The bad news, as we now know, was his brother having been shot and soon to die in Dallas. And that basically had Bobby... Um, not quite sure what to do in life. He, was, he went through a period of deep depression that lasted months. He, was, he thought about just giving everything up and going off and using his father's money and traveling with his growing family in Europe or maybe going and teaching at a university. And those were interesting thoughts, but nobody who was named Kennedy and who had been trained by Joe Kennedy was ever really going to give up public life. Bobby decided as the ultimate carpetbagger that the best state to run for an office from was New York. There happened to be a vulnerable Republican in New York, an affable white-haired guy named Ken Keating. Bobby Kennedy went to New York, campaigned across the state with his mother, Rose, telling New Yorkers that he, in fact, was really a New Yorker and not a Bay Stater from Massachusetts, and convinced enough people that he won as a U.S. senator. And even then, he was not a natural campaigner. Uh, it did not come easy for him. And even at the time of the 68 campaign, uh, what was it that allowed him over time, certainly by 1968, to begin to make those connections with the people that, that felt so connected to him? So it was an extraordinary thing. As much as Jack Kennedy had drawn big crowds, Bobby, the press started referring to him as the fifth Beatle. He would, people would tug at his clothes, tug at his hair, he would often come from a campaign appearance with one shoe and one cuff link and a tuft of hair missing. And I think what, as you say, and you're exactly right, it was not his eloquence, because he was not naturally eloquent. He had a bit of a stutter. He was nervous in front of crowds. But I think what it was was something that we never expect to see or hear from a politician, whether it was 50 years ago or today, and that is a politician who's not just telling the truth, but telling people the hard truth, the truth that they don't want to hear. So what that meant in 1968 was going into black groups and white groups and telling them exactly the opposite of what they wanted to hear. He would tell black audiences, what we need is, number one, safe streets. And the only time we're going to talk about racial justice is if we stop the riots and get safe streets. And he went into white audiences and he said, number one, what we need is racial justice. And the only way we're going to get that is if we have safe streets. 
And he went into both groups, told them things that they weren't used to hearing, pandering politicians talk about. And people were so struck by this guy, so were journalists. You know, the most cynical and hardened of all audiences are the journalists who were listening to him. And they started out hating him, and they ended up falling in love with him. In 1968, uh, obviously, uh, the big change came, I believe it was in March, when Lyndon Johnson announced that he would not seek the Democratic Party nomination after a strong showing by Gene McCarthy in New Hampshire. What made Kennedy enter the race as opposed to relying on McCarthy to be the anti-war candidate? So when Bobby Kennedy saw Gene McCarthy um, doing well in New Hampshire, he actually made the decision to jump into New Hampshire before the primary, but he wanted to give McCarthy who had been there in the cold, snowy hills in New Hampshire, an open shot at LBJ um, in that one primary. But Bobby was chomping at the bit to run for president. He realized that all these young anti-war activists who had come to him and asked him to run, that they were his natural constituency. He hated the idea that um, if there was going to be a Catholic candidate, that it be a guy named McCarthy rather than Kennedy, was anathema to Bobby that these young students would find another hero was anathema to Bobby. And finally, he decided that much as the idea of challenging his brother's vice president initially seemed like just the wrong move to him, in the end, he decided that he had no choice but to do it. And he did it passionately. He did it late enough that a famous columnist named Murray Kempton sent a telegram to Ted Kennedy because Bobby was jumping in just after McCarthy had seemingly showed how vulnerable LBJ was. And the telegram read, St. Patrick didn't drive all the snakes out of Ireland. <laughs> you mentioned he was not a particularly eloquent speaker, but he found his passion and he found his compassion uh, seemingly at around the same time. Was there a moment uh, that spoke to that passion and his connection to people uh, that resonated any better than in Indianapolis in April of 1968 when he broke the news of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. So there was no moment that was better. And to remind your listeners, what happened then was Bobby had been out campaigning in his first contested primary in the state of Indiana. He had been out on an airplane, the family airplane called the Caroline, named after Jack Kennedy's daughter, Caroline. He flies in that afternoon to the airport in Indianapolis, and he's greeted by the young mayor of Indianapolis named Richard Luger. Luger says to Bobby, I've got horrible news. Martin Luther King was shot and killed today in Memphis. And Luger continues by saying, you are due to talk tonight in the Black Ghetto in Indianapolis. You will not give your speech, because if you go in there, you might not come out alive, or there might be a riot. And Bobby listened and proceeded to ignore the advice drove into the black community, jumped up on the back of a flatbed pickup truck, and for the next five minutes gave, gave an ad-libbed, the most eloquent and pitch-perfect speech that I've ever heard a politician anywhere in any era give. He went in there to embrace that community for the loss of Martin Luther King, and instead the community embraced him for the loss five years earlier of Jack Kennedy. That was Indianapolis that night was just about the only major city in America with a substantial African-American community not to have a riot, and the reason was Robert Francis Kennedy. 
Uh, in early June, the night that he was shot, he had just won the California primary. As you look back at things and the way the campaign and the race were developing, do you feel like that victory in California would have catapulted him to at least the Democratic nomination? So I'm glad you asked, and I think there's no doubt. I think a couple things were going to happen. Bobby's famous last words before he went into the kitchen that night and was shot by Sirhan Sirhan, his last words on the podium were, and it's on to Chicago, let's win there. And what he meant, everybody thought that he meant, it's on to Chicago that summer for the Democratic Convention. What he really meant, it had a double meaning. He meant that, but he also meant, and it's on tomorrow to see Richard Daly in a secret meeting with the all-powerful mayor of Chicago. Daly, according to his son, his son tells me 50 years later, that his father was planning that next morning to endorse Bobby Kennedy for president. Had Daley done that, the only real opponent after the California victory that was left and that Bobby was worried about was Vice President Hubert Humphrey, who had not entered any of the early primaries. Had Daley kicked off the wave, I think, of endorsements that would have followed his by big, powerful politicians, of mayors of big cities and governors, I think it would have been it would have been impossible for Humphrey to win the nomination. Bobby would have been the nominee in Chicago. The way Democrats worked back then, the way both parties worked back then, is the top two candidates united to form a ticket. And I think the ticket in 68 would have been Kennedy, Humphrey. I think that had you had no riots in Chicago, had you had Bobby Kennedy, who eight years before had run his brother Jack's successful campaign against Nixon, and knew every one of Nixon's quirks and vulnerabilities, had you had a ticket like that, I think that they would have trounced Richard Nixon. But you don't have to believe what I think. Richard Nixon was convinced that Bobby was going to be the nominee, and Richard Nixon was as worried as he could be, because he knew that every dirty trick and hardball tactic that he, Nixon, had learned, he had learned in 60 from Bobby Kennedy. That was such a traumatic year, as some would say the most turbulent uh, in, in the 20th century, at the very least. What did the assassination of Bobby Kennedy do to the American psyche? So it did a couple things, and very concrete things. Imagine, I can't imagine a more different figure that could have been in the White House, as, a, as opposed to having had Richard Nixon there for six years, or however long he lasted, than having Bobby Kennedy there. It gave America... Having lost Jack Kennedy, then Martin Luther King, then Bobby Kennedy, many liberals and many young people who were engaged in the process, I think, lost hope in 1968. They lost hope. They lost the chance of having Bobby Kennedy. They lost a sense that issues like racial injustice and poverty and the war in Vietnam, instead of being at the top of the agenda and really having given those a shot at redressing. We ended up staying in Vietnam two or three years longer than we had to. We ended up having issues simmer for 50 years, and we see what the result is today in terms of racial tension. We ended up with poverty, where Bobby Kennedy would have made that his number one agenda item. The psyche of America and the factual on-the-ground reality in America, I think, couldn't have been more different and couldn't have been more changed by one event than by the assassination that night exactly 50 years ago. 
50 years have gone by, and in that time, while Jack Kennedy is still revered, at least some of the shine may have come off his legend as we've learned more about him. But it seems to me that the five decades later have made Bobby Kennedy's star shine even brighter because of what we didn't know, and that's what he could have done if given that opportunity. You're exactly right, that Bobby Kennedy had no shot to show us what he could have done, so it was all a question of hope. He also had no chance to disappoint us. Jack Kennedy gave us three years of a partly successful presidency. Bobby Kennedy left us with a sense, in my mind at least, of always seeing that young guy, 42 years old, tussled, windblown hair, buck teeth, and enormous possibility, and now we'll never know. Author Larry Tai, who wrote Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a Liberal Icon, remembering Bobby Kennedy on this 50th anniversary of his assassination. As we wrap up, Downtown the Podcast. Thanks to our sponsors, Cross Insurance, where security meets strength, and Nice Brewing Company, German-style beer from the woods of Maine. Don't forget to listen to Downtown uh, every day, 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, on WZON Radio, out of Bangor, Maine, WKIT HD3, streaming audio on our website, downtownwithrichkimball.com, and you can download the WZON app as well. Tell your friends about the podcast, subscribe, spread the word, and join us next week for another edition of Downtown Podcast.